Recently, a beer company shoved the transgender movement uh, into our faces yet again. Uh, This time, a significant backlash has occurred, but my guess is that in the months to come, we'll look at this as just one more phase in the continual downward spiral of humanity. One more step in which we are expected to just get over it and get used to the way things are going to be. But to identify as a gender that is different from one's physical anatomy is the height of defiance against God. Asserting autonomy over one's body Uh, to any extent, uh, as well as independence from the Creator, blatantly denies his authority and disregards his worship, depriving him of that worship. The book of Romans makes clear, though, especially in its opening few chapters, That's not limited to just a small segment of our society. In fact, Paul was uh, going to great lengths in those opening chapters to make it clear that that kind of rebellion has deep roots in the heart of every single person. It's part of our fallen nature to assert our independence, to suppose that we have a, a, uh, an autonomy over ourselves. Yes, people think that they have a right to decide how they are going to live themselves. God's people are no exception to that. We uh, assert our, uh, that, that very perspective every time we choose to disobey God's word. And every time we complain about his plan that didn't work out or hasn't worked out yet the way we want. You see how that's also uh, a, a claim of autonomy, a depriving God of honor, disregarding his authority. The result is Christians living for self. Sadly, we come to think of that as normal. Not that we are satisfied with it, but uh, maybe it's the best we can do. Maybe it's all God really expects of us. As Pastor Chris indicated before our scripture reading, we stand at the threshold of a major shift, the major shift in the book of Romans. Everything we have studied so far has emphasized primarily the gospel, what we need to know about salvation. That's basically chapters 1 through 11. 
We've got several chapters left, and now the focus shifts. There has been admonition already in these first 11 chapters, and there is truth yet to come in the chapters that remain. But the emphasis now shifts not to what we need to know, but how we need to live. Paul is going to get uh, increasingly specific in that how. But in these first two verses of Romans 12, he lays a firm foundation for all of the admonitions, all the exhortations that are yet to come. Clearly, this is an important message. Paul has not written this book just so we can know the truth. He wrote this book so that we can appropriately respond to that truth with changed lives. So here's what Romans 12, 1 and 2 says to lay this foundation. He draws together both parts, since these are transitional verses, reminding us of what he's already said, and that is that Christ has provided redemption. What difference should that make in our lives? You must decide to live for the Lord. If, in fact, you have taken advantage of the redemption that Christ has provided, Paul asserts in these verses, that comes with obligation. An obligation to live for the Lord. Now, what does that mean? What's that supposed to look like? First of all, in verse 1, Paul begins with a call to devote your, your life to the Lord. There are three parts to this, and the first one is to respond to what he's done for you. Here's the indication of the transitional nature of, of uh, chapter 12 and, and these first two verses. Respond to all that God has done. In Paul's words, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. I appeal to you, therefore. The therefore is pointing back to all of chapters 1 through 11. Because of what God has done for you in Christ. Because of what your miserable condition was and would still be and would only get worse when you enter eternity. Because he saved you from that and has given you all the treasures that, that we rejoiced in as we got to the end of chapter 11. Christ has saved your soul. I appeal to you, therefore, Paul says. I appeal to you, therefore. Listen to this earnest call. This is God's call. This is God saying, look what I've done. Listen to that call. Respond to all that God has done. This is a personal exhortation. 
He addresses us here as family members, brothers, and of course sisters in Christ. I appeal to you, the beneficiaries of the gospel. At the same time that it's very personal, it's also quite authoritative. Paul is not issuing this on his own authority. This is God's authority. This is God appealing. When God appeals, he's issuing a command. God is exercising his rightful authority here. Appreciate then this gift that God has given. We ought to be eager to show our appreciation and eager to know how God would want us to express that to him. Not content with what what might seem good enough to me. What would be good enough in God's sight? What would satisfy him? What would he think is the appropriate response to what he has done? Paul further issues this appeal, he says, by the mercies of God. On the basis of all the mercies, the plural there is likely significant. It took Paul 11 chapters to describe them, to help us appreciate all that God has done. And on the basis of those mercies, then, he issues this appeal. God's compassionate saving work. And that leads then to the heart of the appeal itself. What's he appealing for us to do? That's in the next part of verse 1. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Well, there is what God expects. In God's perspective, what would be the appropriate response to all that he has done? It would be nothing less than to present yourself as a sacrifice to him. Now, clearly, this has Old Testament sacrificial system allusions. In the Old Testament system, and, and, and not just for, among God's people, but even uh, pagans uh, with, uh, their res- with, with a human residual sense of the image of God that God has placed in every human heart, marred by sin, but it's still there. Even pagans would have a sense that I ought to be sacrificing something. Now, of course, to sacrifice an animal. That was significant for them. Someone had, say, a a hundred sheep, and God expects the sacrifice of one of them. All right, well, that's a sheep that could have borne other uh, uh, lambs. Uh, That's a sheep that could have provided food that would have for years have provided wool for clothing. But what could have benefited me, I give to God. 
and I give it entirely. You sacrifice a a sheep or any animal to God, it's gone. But that's not what God is asking of us. This is not sacrifice yourself and it's over. Uh, to end our life would, it would uh, be counter to God's plan here. He's not saying, I want you to give me your life and you're done. No, I want you to give me your life while I continue to sustain that life. This is to be a living sacrifice. And there marks one of its uh, chief a contrast to animal sacrifice. This one continues to function. That also marks one of our chief challenges. We continue to function. Life goes on. I sacrificed myself to God, but here I am still, and I'm still in this world, and so the temptation to use the grace that God gives in sustaining life every day to use it to please self. Now, the decision that would please God is I present myself as a living sacrifice to you. What would have benefited me in certain ways, I give this now to you. Your benefit is now what counts. Accomplishing your purpose is now the goal. Part of this that we've seen earlier in Romans involves what Scripture calls dying to self. To die to self then. And it's the whole person. You can't sacrifice just a part The whole person here, everything you are, everything you have, God expects nothing less than that. Uh, and, and he emphasizes that by the, by the word bodies. Present your bodies to him. Now, it's not just your body. He needs your heart as well. He wants your mind as well. It's the whole person. Why choose body to represent that? Because it's the one we struggle with the most. It's the one that is visible to other people. It's it's how we interact with the world. It's like, even that, God? Isn't it enough just that I say that I love you? No, he wants it demonstrated in what you do in your body. The choices you make that show up in everyday life. It's a dying to self, but as a living sacrifice, it is a devotion to God. It's the decision to do what God expects. As a living sacrifice, it needs to be holy. That corresponds to the Old Testament uh, rituals. Uh, An animal had to be whole. It needed to be pure. 
nothing broken, uh, no, no, uh, no limp in this animal. Every part had to be right. And his expectation is no less for us. To be holy means to be separate from common use, separate from self, separate from sin, and separated to God. Two parts to holiness. You take it from the common realm, you devote it to God. And here's a good reminder that every part of life for a child of God is sacred. We can't separate. Well, today I'm going to engage in some sacred things, some spiritual things. Uh, Tomorrow, that's more for me. There is no such division. If it's a whole living sacrifice that is holy, The last part of that phrase emphasizes who has to be pleased. Acceptable to God. Not measuring up to your standard. I think I can give him this much. It has to be, well, God, how much do you expect? What's your standard here? That has to become now my goal. That has to become what I present to God. So while it is a dying to yourself, it is now, in place of that, a living for God that will show itself in service. Well-pleasing to God, something that he would find acceptable. And finally, in verse 1, this last part, just these last couple of words, uh, it gets translated here, which is your spiritual worship. I say translated here, if you're using the uh, English Standard Version, if you happen to have another one, you may be looking at some different words. And it might look like the correlation between them is quite distant. Uh, There are uh, uh, good translations that might translate these very same words that Paul uses here as reasonable service. Reasonable service, spiritual worship. Sounds like we're dealing with two separate concepts here, doesn't it? But the the, the real issue here is not that uh, we have to decide which one of these is right, which one is closer to the truth. We're dealing with another issue, and that is that there is there is a concept inherent in the words that Paul has used, and we don't have any one set of English words that can say it. None of our options are adequate. Now, a translator's got to make a choice, and so uh, our translation has one of those options. Others have others, uh, and we need to appreciate both of these. This is an act of worship. What is worship? Worship is giving glory to God. 
That's the focus of why we are here today. And every aspect of our service, that's our point. That's our purpose. But Scripture also makes it clear that that's your purpose all day, every day. So to give yourself as a living sacrifice to God means that now my whole life becomes an act of worship. It's spiritual worship in a very special sense that it has to be genuine. Spiritual worship would be genuine worship. What's the alternative? Just going through the motions, having an appearance. But see, what would be acceptable to God is if you're giving him honor is not just an outward appearance. This is not a show. This starts in your heart. You are committed from the heart. God, I want to honor you in all that I do all day long, every day this week. Starting from the heart, and then by God's grace, showing itself in the life. That would be genuine. That's why genuine worship is an appropriate translation. But at the same time, the word here uh, translated spiritual uh, also works really well as our English word reasonable. And this could be a reminder that God is not asking too much here. This is not uh, over the top. Whoa, he wants everything? On what basis? Well, on the basis that he has given you everything. He's given you the salvation of your soul. He's given you the certainty of eternity with him. Looking at all that God has done for you in Christ, the response at the end of verse 1 would be, well, than a living sacrifice that is holy and acceptable to God, it's just the reasonable response. Uh, How could I try to negotiate anything less? Of course, that's the right response. But that this response is reasonable service. We we tend to associate worship with the, the... the, the formality of coming together as we have done this morning. That's worship. Well, no, worship is also how you serve God. And that goes on all week long. Your reasonable service is at the same time your spiritual worship of God. You striving Not too hard, not too much, not going over the top, but just trying to be acceptable to God. That's your spiritual worship. All day, every day, wherever you go. And you see how that connects the fundamental uh, problem of sin. Back in chapter 1, Paul made it clear that that the process of unfolding sin in in humanity was 
resulting in depriving God of worship. And so when God makes that sinful heart right with him, frees us from the bondage of sin, we are once again free to give him the glory that he deserves. I was a dentist one time examining a patient and I had to point out that you've got a couple of cavities here. You need to be doing a little better job uh, brushing, flossing, and uh, having given that opportunity, the girl he was talking to complained, well, you know, it's, it is kind of hard to reach back there in the back teeth to try to get the floss in between do I really have to floss all my teeth? And the dentist responded, no, 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 you don't have to floss them all. Just the ones you want to keep. Do I really have to give my whole life to God? I mean, every hour? Every aspect of my life. Okay, well, this is going to have some theological issues, but I'm going to say it anyway, and we'll just not worry about, okay? No, no, you don't have to devote your whole life to God. Just the part you expect him to save. Any room for negotiation there? I don't think so. I don't think any reasonable person would. Verse 1, then, is calling for a daily decision. A daily routine, and the word routine here is not inherently negative. Something that you need to do regularly becomes a routine. And you can follow a routine without it becoming merely routine, as long as it continues to come from your heart. A daily routine of devotion that begins, as this verse begins, with a sense of obligation to God. Express your gratitude to God. Then devote yourself to God. Once again today, God, I present my whole self to you. And then that includes the, uh, the desire, the plan, the plea for his grace to glorify him in everything you do that day. No exceptions. Well, sacrifice, uh, spiritual worship, would you like Paul to get a little more specific about what that ought to look like? Well, let's go ahead to verse 2 then. Living for the Lord begins with devoting your life to the Lord, but it has to continue by aligning your life to the Lord. Aligning yourself to him. 
Verse 2 then begins with this uh, uh, prohibition, uh, this call to stop something that we find so easy to engage in. Do not be conformed to this world. Resist the continual sinful pressure that we find just because we live here. And that pressure is unrelenting. That, that pressure is everywhere we go. Resist the pull of that sinful uh, pressure. Exercise the option to say no to self. Something that would please you but would displease God, unacceptable for him, you've got the option to say no. Exercise the option to say no to sin. But expect the world is going to continue to assert its pressure. And it has some power. Peer pressure is a powerful pressure. And adapting to what is all around us, well, that sure makes things easier. At least it would seem. Okay, who likes to stand out as different from everybody else? Well, the old realm with its uh, evil values, its wicked actions, I mean, that's all part of where we were. And it still has an allure for us. This is the world drawing us with its tentacles that still have a bit of a hold. Not a hold that God's grace can't overcome. But this is a reality. The world desires your compliance. And in so doing, desires your failure for God. The world is satisfied with nothing less than that. The godless patterns of behavior that can feel so familiar, can make us uh, feel comfortable, can be so attractive. The world's got quite an arsenal. Don't be conformed to that. Resist that pull of sinful pressure. On the positive side, next part of verse 2, adopt the goal of godly thinking. Rather than being conformed to the world, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This renewal, then, has to start on the inside. You don't change one conformity fitting in with the world for another conformity. Well, now these are the people I need to fit in with. Let's see, what do I need to change to fit in here better? Uh, That would be outward conformity. Sadly, many people try to be satisfied with that. It's a miserable existence to try to live like a child of God when you aren't actually on the inside. God's plan is that it start on the inside. Let him save your soul. But then begins the process of changing your mind, 
changing how you think, changing your values, your perspective on circumstances. Because the one that we come with, our default pattern of thinking, is the one that aligns with the world. To change that and now to align with God means I need to start thinking like he does. His thinking aligns with reality. And that is what I need to have as well. So adopt this goal of godly thinking. You see, the gospel offers this kind of change. This is available to us. This is the good news. This isn't, now, I have to generate this. The gospel generates this from the inside. And the gospel offers genuine change. Uh, a, A continual inward progress. Be transformed indicates two things. We have a responsibility but we also have a dependence on God's grace to accomplish this. The gospel must be the directing factor. We've been uh, working our way, uh, at least many in our church family, working our way through memorizing Romans chapter 8, the the passage for the month of April. It's uh, verses 12 through 14, and uh, the, verse 14 says, All who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. It's a clear mark of connection with Christ that you are actually striving to follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Letting him change your mind and then together by God's grace, your mind is directing your actions, how you live. What process is going to uh, promote that renewing of your mind? What can you do to think more like God thinks? Well, clearly that has the center on the Word of God which is where he tells us what he thinks, tells us his perspective on life, on circumstances. You cannot hope to think like God if you're not spending time in God's word. That becomes then the focus as well of this last part of verse 2. He says that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, there are a lot of misunderstandings about what is going on here. And we have to admit, there is a degree of uh, confusion available on this whole concept of God's will. But as, as we have studied this uh, in the past together, it, it has become clear to us that there are two overlapping but yet distinct aspects of God's will. There's God's sovereign will, that's God's plan, and many think that's what this is describing. 
And so what would it mean to discern by testing what is the will of God? Well, all right, God thinks uh, uh, this, God, you're leading me in this path. I'll try it out. I'll see how I like it. And if I don't like God's plan, then I may try a different one. Uh, God is not inviting us to test out his sovereign will. His sovereign will is exactly what is going to happen, whether you like it or not. He's not talking about his sovereign will in verse 2. The other aspect of the will of God, to distinguish it from sovereign will, I like to call his moral will. God's moral will, he has revealed in its entirety. And he wrote it down. It's his word. His moral will is recorded in his word. And he's left nothing out. And everything is perfect. This is just what he uh, uh, has revealed to us. So let's look at it from that standpoint. That by testing, you may discern what the will of God is. If it's all in God's word, then how do you test it? You read God's word. You discern, what would God want me to think about this circumstance? You get it from his word. You discern it there, and then you decide to obey it. Now, this word discern by testing, uh, it took several English words to convey one uh, word that Paul used, and it is to prove that it, in fact, is right. Every time you discern the right action to take, and you take it, you will be proving once again, what do you know, he was right about that one too. That maybe didn't make really good sense to me, but I decided to do it God's way, and he's right. It does accomplish what he says at the end of the verse. These are not three different levels of God's will. These are three different descriptions of the one moral will of God. It's what God wants you to do in every circumstance. It's how he wants you to think. And every time you choose God's word and obey his word, you will find out that his word, his will, in that sense, is good. Profitable for you. You will find out that it is acceptable, pleasing. And I'm glad I obeyed God's word. Further, you'll find out it's perfect. It's complete. Brings me right to the goal. Because that's always the nature of God's Word. So examine the Scripture. Pursue this path of righteous choices. Put into practice all that God says as you examine the Scripture, then you will experience the blessing of obedience. There's no substitute for that. Any other choice results in what? 
guilt. That's an awful burden to carry. Instead of that, you choose to obey God, and you get this blessing of, he's right again. I chose to obey God, and I am not sorry. Christ has provided your full redemption. If you've chosen him as Savior, he saved your whole life. You must decide to live for the Lord. There was once a preacher by the name of Henry Varley. You may not have heard of him from some time ago. One day he was talking with a young man, and the one before him, he, had, he found out in this conversation, had grown up in poverty in the home of an alcoholic father. He had dropped out of school at the age of 13 and never went back. Uh, this young man had some very serious limitations. And yet in his conversation with him, Henry Varley felt moved to say something important. Right toward the end of their talk, he looked this young man in the eye and he said, the world has yet to see what God can do through one man devoted to him. That young man pondered that thought for a few moments and then replied to Henry Varley. He said, by God's grace, I want to be that man. His name was Dwight L. Moody, who went on to preach to hundreds of thousands of people all around the world. He started a church 160 years ago now that is still preaching the gospel today. Started a Bible college that is still training young people. And yet the opportunity to be someone who is wholly devoted to God is still an open door. You can choose to devote yourself to him. You can choose to live for the Lord. He expects nothing less, but we often give him far less. This opening of Romans 12 has this passionate call Be the person who devotes himself to God. Make that choice. It can only be done by God's grace. Ask for his help. Ask for God's grace to devote yourself daily to him and to every day align your life Let's bow for prayer.
Father, we confess to you that you, in fact, are asking a lot, but you're not asking too much. We pray that you would give to uh, each of your children today a sense of deep obligation. This is the right response to all you've done for us in Christ. Father, at the same time, we pray that you would burden the hearts of those who have never become the recipients of what you've done in Christ. We pray that today would be the day of salvation. And for all your people, today would be the beginning of that full commitment of devotion to Christ. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.